This morning we're continuing on with our series that we've been in for the last few weeks. It's called He Gets Us. And this morning we're talking about another dimension of Jesus' life. And so I titled this Jesus' New Sorrow. I'm going to read from John chapter 11, which includes the verse that David Cote focused on a little bit earlier, the shortest verse in the Bible. But this is John 11:28 to 31. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how much he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? After walking through the first four parts of this He Gets Us series, I can't think of a more fitting topic given some of the events of the past week. This week was dominated by sorrow, if you know our church family well. On Tuesday, I was visiting a friend in prison, and this was a very sorry sight. And as I was driving away from the Plymouth prison, I saw that I had two text messages from Dr. Doug Johnson. Doug Johnson happens to be Jerry Cammon's son-in-law. He let me know that Jerry had taken a fall while working in his orchard on Monday, and he was unresponsive on Tuesday. And then Doug added that the, the doctors had said that Jerry's brain was not going to survive this one. Jerry and I first met about 36, 37, maybe 38 years ago. And in the summer of 1989, Jerry and Marge took a huge risk when I told them that a small group of us were praying about starting a new church. It didn't have a name yet. We didn't have a meeting place yet. Jerry and Marge had three young children. We didn't have a children's ministry figured out yet. In fact, we didn't have a budget yet. But Jerry and Marge prayed about it for about a week and then called me back saying, we're in. Just tell us what you need to do, what you need us to do. Jerry and Marge helped choose our church's name. They helped decide our first meeting place in the old Pembroke Community Center. Jerry created architectural drawings for just about every site that we looked at buying or acquiring. There were about 40 of them along the way. Jerry was one of our first chairs of the overseers team. And for about a year or two, he chaired our building search team. And then he led a small group for more than 30 years. If you're a small group leader, you've got a lot to live up to to catch Jerry. And now Jerry had gone out the way that he wanted while working in his orchard. I have to tell you, I cried a few times this week over Jerry's passing. Where do you find people like that who hear about an idea, who, who pray about an idea that doesn't even have a name yet, and they call back a week later and say, we're in, just tell us what you need us to do. People like that don't grow on trees. Pears grow on trees. That's what Jerry loved to do the last several years. But men like Jerry don't. 
That same morning, I received a text message from our dear friend, Corinne DeGraff. Corinne had lost an adult son, Mitchell, in April, and now a second son, Randy, who'd not been well for some time, had also passed. Such sorrow. Corinne has prayed for her sons faithfully right into their adult years. I know her faith is strong, but I wondered, how much can one person take? And then I settled in to work on part five of this He Gets Us series. Jesus knew sorrow. I couldn't have known this when we lined up these topics, but we needed this around here on this particular week. Another reminder came on Friday night while Sue and I were watching Blue Bloods. We're just kind of vegging out to TV and some ads were running and all of a sudden there was another He Gets Us ad that came flashing across the screen. And there was the reminder I needed. Jesus gets us when we go through weeks like this. He gets us, this He Gets Us montage that you see behind me uh, came from a website this week that popped up on another time when I wasn't expecting it. So we're getting these reminders again and again that Jesus gets us. And if you're watching on TV today, I want to tell you that Jesus gets you right where you are. So here we go. Our topic this morning is Jesus knew sorrow. So good morning, North River. I'm glad that you're here. Welcome to everybody who is in the house today. Welcome to those of you who are watching online, wherever you may be, from a different state, from your home, from a hotel somewhere as you're traveling. We're really glad that you are a part of this today. And if you're new to North River, I want you to know that this can be a whole new start for you, and you're in the right place here this morning. So here's the question that I often get as a pastor. Who is the real Jesus? Is Jesus this being that we see in the old pictures with an orange halo around his head, or this otherworldly type of experience that we see in some of the old portrayals and film of Jesus? Or did Jesus understand the hard things of life. For instance, did Jesus really know sorrow? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Here's the big idea for this morning. If you're ready to tune out and you didn't get much sleep last night, listen to this and you got the snapshot of the whole service. If you want to find out what's behind it, you've got to listen to the rest of this. Got the wrong one on my notes here, but here it is. Jesus took on the deepest kinds of sorrow on the path to redeeming us so that we might live mercy-filled lives. I'd like to walk you through very quickly six times when sorrow impacted Jesus. We find all these scenes from the Gospels. The first is that sorrow was part of Jesus' life from the start. We read from one of the birth narratives of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. It says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he added, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This statement occurred on the day when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to be dedicated. If you've ever dedicated a child, that's where this ceremony comes from. It's older than infant baptism. It's what we practice here with young children. And this was a very important day for Joseph and Mary. They were following a tradition that went all the way back to the days of Hannah's dedication of Samuel, who became the high priest and the prophet who led Israel for 80 years before they had kings. Because they were a poor family, they brought a poor family's offering, which usually would be either two doves or, or two pigeons. 
And as they were coming into the temple, there was an old prophet named Simeon who was well along in years who all of a sudden came out of the shadows and he recognized them as they came up with this little eight-day-old Jesus. And Simeon had a word from the Lord that says, this is the child. This is the one I promised. This is the chosen one, the Messiah. And he blessed them and he spoke of Jesus becoming the savior of all the nations of the world. After speaking about the role that Jesus would play, he also spoke to Mary, and he added that sentence, a sword will pierce your own soul too. This simple piece of information would have come to Luke as he interviewed people in order to write down a full report in his gospel, which means that he must have interviewed Mary. This information could only have come from Mary. And she'd pondered that statement for more than 30 years and wondered, when would that sorrow come in the life of Jesus? So we see that Mary quietly expected that part of Jesus' life would bring her sorrow. Sorrow was part of Jesus' life from the start. Here's a second observation. He was affected by the sorrow of loss. In John chapter 11, some of the words I read a moment ago, it says, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews would come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, Jesus asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And then John wrote, Jesus wept. John's gospel tells us the account of Lazarus' death. Now, if you're not familiar with this part of the gospel, Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha, were among Jesus' closest friends. They cared for him. They made his home a place where he could teach and rest and relax. So here's Jesus, who doesn't have a home of his own, had this one safe place where he could retreat to the home of friends who had overwhelmed him with their continued offer of hospitality. And he often stayed with them when he was near Jerusalem. Earlier that same week, Jesus had gotten word that Lazarus was sick, but Jesus had delayed. He was in another part of Israel. And he spoke on that day of how the Lord would be glorified through Lazarus. But instead of immediately rushing back to their hometown when he got the news that Lazarus was sick, Jesus delayed his return for two days and he kept on teaching where he was. The result was, by the time that he had traveled back to Bethany, the village where they lived, Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And these beloved family members spoke openly about how they felt if Jesus had come sooner, Lazarus would not have died. Now, despite the fact that they're close friends, imagine the pressure of having your friends know that you're the son of God and that you've done all these miraculous things. Here's this added pressure. They were convinced if Jesus had only come earlier, in other words, Jesus, you should have, why didn't you? Their brother wouldn't have died. Luke records three internal reactions from Jesus when he arrived in Bethany. The first says that he was deeply moved in spirit. Uh, I read one uh, interpretation of the verb that's used there, and it, it literally means like his guts were torn in two. Then it says that he was troubled, and then the third reaction is that he wept. Nothing about his power and authority exempted him from the pain of human loss. 
And the pain he felt, even though he knew the power of God was able to lift him, was real. And then he displayed his authority over life and death, and he called Lazarus from the tomb. It has often been said that if Jesus had not begun that command with the name of Lazarus, saying, Lazarus, come out, that every grave in the region would have opened and released the bodies that were housed therein. That's the kind of authority that Jesus had. So we see that, he was, that sorrow was a part of Jesus' life from the start. He was affected by the sorrow of loss. Here's a third discovery. He experienced the sorrow of betrayal. Matthew 26 includes these words. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Think about this. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 original disciples. He saw and heard amazing things for Jesus for three years. Along with the other disciples, he had been given authority to preach and to heal. And yet he openly and deliberately betrayed Jesus. The reason why is never detailed in the Gospels. Matthew tells us the price, 30 pieces of silver. Mark quotes Jesus saying that one who was eating with him at the Last Supper would betray him. Luke adds a detail that Satan had already entered into Judas. If there was ever a reason to believe in the evil one, this is it. Betrayal produces the rawest of emotions in us. Most of us have experienced some kind of betrayal at some level. The word betrayal is usually associated when trust is violated by someone who is close to you, a close family member, an intimate friend, a business associate who is a partner. Betrayal trauma is the term that is used to describe the emotional impact when that trust is broken this way by a parent, family member, caregiver, or by a key relationship in your life. While it can lead to several lingering effects like PTSD and depression and a whole lot more in us, Jesus had no time. In other words, the ball was already rolling, and from the moment that he was betrayed by Judas, he was on his way to the cross. And he carried that pain of betrayal to the cross. No time to seek out a counselor. No time to pour it out to another friend. And we're told that Judas had been looking for an opportunity to hand Jesus over for some time. On top of those three observations, we also find that he endured being disowned by a friend. Luke 22 in, includes this encounter with Peter as Jesus was going through the trial before the chief priests and the Sanhedrin, and Peter was warming himself by a fire with a number of other people who had crowded in close in order to watch. It says here in verse 60 of Luke 22, Peter replied, man, I don't know what you are talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster, the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. 
On the heels of Judas' betrayal came Peter's disowning of Jesus, his friend. After Peter had boasted that he would give his life for Jesus, Jesus told him that very night that he would betray him three times before the rooster crowed in the morning. Luke 22 records all three of those denials. I just read about the last one. As Peter was warming himself by the fire, first there was a servant girl who recognized him as having been with Jesus. That was Peter's crime, just being with Jesus, and he denied it. And then there was another person who called out that Peter was one of them. He was, he was one of the twelve, and again, he denied it. Finally, a third person recognized him and says, surely you are one of those Galileans. John adds that this third person remembered seeing Peter with Jesus in Gethsemane, that he was related to the man whose ear Peter had cut off with a sword that night trying to defend Jesus. When Peter disowned him the third time, Luke says that Jesus heard that, and while the trial was going on, he turned around and looked directly at Peter. Can you imagine what's involved in that scene? The heartbreak from Jesus, the horror from Peter at being found out, and then the rooster crowed. And Peter realized that everything that Jesus had warned him about had come true. Being disowned by a friend is right up there with the trauma of betrayal. At that moment, Jesus was more alone than he had ever been before. And he was about to die for the sins of friends who disowned him. Observation number five he wept over the city of Jerusalem. Luke chapter 19 says that as he approached Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he saw the city and he wept over it and said, if you, only you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So here's Jesus on this great day of celebration. He's riding on that donkey down the hill toward the city of, of Jerusalem People are throwing down their cloaks over the pathway. Some are cutting down palm branches. Some of them are waving them. Some of them are laying them down on top of the cloaks as Jesus makes his way toward the city. But Jesus, seeing the city, seeing all of the people, and knowing what would unfold over the next week, wept as he looked over the city of Jerusalem. He wept because he knew that he alone could bring them real peace and yet by the end of the week, he would be rejected. Those adoring crowds were received by Jesus who wept over the city's coming destruction. These were tears shed over the spiritual blindness of his people. Think about it. Miracles and great sermons like the Sermon on the Mount were never enough for that generation. It would take his death and resurrection for some of them to come to their senses, even for some of his own brothers to come to their senses and realize who Jesus was. And yet for others, even that was not enough. And so it is with so many people today. We have so much information about Jesus. So many people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. They've heard, they've pondered, but you wonder what would it take for people to change their hearts and to receive him as God's son. And then there's a sixth observation. He felt sorrow to the point of death. Mark 14 includes these words, 
as Jesus was moving into the Garden of Gethsemane just before he was about to be betrayed by Judas. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. We focused on this observation a few weeks ago when we talked about how Jesus knew stress. As Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke says that he was deeply distressed and troubled. Why? Well, he was preparing for the ordeal of his trial, and even though his disciples had no clue of what was about to be unfolded, he knew that the cross was waiting for him. The stress of all the betrayal and disowning, the trial, the beating he would take, the crucifixion, all weighed heavily on him. This is the deepest kind of personal distress. And so Jesus described it to his closest friends this way. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Have you ever had a moment like that when you felt overwhelmed by the sorrow in your life? And you wonder, does God really understand what that is like? Some of you have. Some of you have survived those crushing moments when the unthinkable happens. We must never confuse the power of God to raise Jesus with the personal cost Jesus paid in going to the cross and dying for our sins. Yes, he knew and he believed that God would raise him from the dead, but guess what? Even Jesus had never experienced that yet. And he had to trust to the, to the final limits of his ability and allow himself to be tortured in, in the way that was coming before it was even possible for God to raise him. The costs of our redemption were mounting up and weighing heavily on Jesus. Luke, the medical doctor who writes this gospel, describes the condition of great uh, drops of blood that were coming through his sweat that night as he prayed in the garden. That condition is known as hematidrosis. It's a medical condition that occurs only when a person is under extreme physical and mental stress where the body goes into a fight-or-flight response which can cause the capillaries that carry blood through our system to rupture, leading to blood getting into the sweat glands. So here, long before there was even a name for this condition, we find Jesus suffering from it and Luke writing about it. So the question comes, does Jesus get the burdens that we carry and the brokenness of life? Does Jesus get what it's like to carry somebody else's sins and pay for them? He was sweating great drops of blood as he prepared to take my sin and your sin upon his shoulders and take them to the cross. Again, here's that big idea. Jesus took on the deepest kinds of sorrow on the path to redeeming us that we might live mercy-filled lives. So we've talked about Jesus' sorrow in six dimensions. Here's the payoff from Jesus' sorrow. Number one, he became like us in sorrow. He told us to expect trials and tribulations in this world, that this would be a normal experience. Here's the commentary that we find in the New Testament letter to the Hebrews, chapter 2. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God 
and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus had to become like us, and he did in every way. And so when you think about how you carry your sorrow or we carry our collective sorrow, remember this, that Jesus became like us, and he understands. We have a high priest who also went through great sorrow, and there's not a sorrow that we go through that he hasn't already experienced and endured. Here's the second payoff from Jesus' sorrow. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. That same verse describes the role that Jesus plays before God and before us. The high priest is the one who stands in the middle. On the one hand, who represents God to the people and can offer forgiveness to them. On the other hand, who stands before the people, between the people and God and can represent the people to God. And Jesus continues to function this way for us today. He is our high priest, and he's the one who, who brings our needs to the Father. He is the one who represents us every day. And there are two descriptions that says that he is merciful in that role, and he is faithful in that role. So if you've been wondering how Jesus will deal with you and, and how Jesus will respond to the needs in your life or to even the rebellion in, in your life, the Bible describes him this way as a merciful high priest. He's in the business of giving away that mercy. He's also faithful. He's going to do it in the right way. And he's always going to be faithful to God. And he's always going to be faithful to you and to me as well. And then here's the third payoff from Jesus' sorrow. His mercy flows in atoning for our sins. I like the way that that verse says that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus atoned for our sins that day on the cross. It's, it's once and done forever. And yet his mercy still flows from that day. Every time there's another person who puts their faith in Jesus, mercy flows freshly. Every time you and I come to him in confession and say, Lord, I've messed up, you make things right between you and me and God, and, and he does, and his mercy flows into our lives. We have a faithful and merciful high priest every day. That word atoning is filled with so much meaning. It means that he paid all the debt that we owe to God for our denials, our betrayals, our weaknesses, our rebellions. It means that he has paved the way for us to be right with God. Can you imagine that? Perhaps wherever you are, whether in this room or, or watching from home, you've wondered, can I really be right with God? That's what the cross was all about. And when you put your faith in him, that he alone is your savior, that he nails your sins to that cross from 2,000 years ago, and they are left there, and they're not on your shoulders anymore. It means that everyone who trusts in Jesus gets a clean, fresh start with God. Because Jesus bore our sorrows and took them to the Lord. Here's what we've been exploring. Jesus took on the deepest kinds of sorrow on the path to redeeming us that you and I might live mercy-filled lives. What's the conclusion? Jesus gets us. Jesus gets us in deeply profound ways. Jesus gets us on our worst days. The question always is, do we get Jesus? I wonder if you would be willing to pray this 
final prayer with me. It flows from what we've just been walking through in these observations about Jesus. Let's do this together. Lord, thank you for taking on my sorrows. Forgive me for failing to understand how far you went for me. Forgive me for not fully trusting you until now. Right here, right now, I do. Jesus, I will trust in you alone. Amen. I have news for you. If you've been wondering what your relationship with God is or how you connect with God or how you experience complete forgiveness by God and you prayed that prayer and you meant it, you are new in the eyes of God right now, right here. And he's taken your sins and he's nailed them to that cross and you are free. Free to live a mercy-filled life. God, I ask that on this day you will bless our church and our families and our neighbors and that more and more people would draw near to Jesus because he knows our sorrows and that he carries our sorrows and that he understands how far sometimes we are tested and what it's like to be broken. Allow his power to flow through us and into us in ways that heal, in ways that renew, in ways that, in ways that restore hope, in ways that lead us to be faithful through the rest of our lives and lead us to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.